Good afternoon and welcome back to Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert and I'm reporting for KFSK. The start of Alaska's cruise ship season is just two weeks away. Juneau will welcome hundreds of cruise ships in the coming months. In a recent interactive feature for Hockey Magazine, freelance investigative journalist Andrew Engelson took a look at the impact the cruise industry has on the environment and quality of life in southeast Alaska. In Juneau, Anna Canny asked him about his findings. So you're based in Seattle, and that's sort of the hub where a lot of these Alaskan cruise ships set sail. So I'm sure you're used to just seeing the presence of the industry. But as a reporter, what motivated you to take a deep dive into their environmental impacts? Yeah, you can't help but see those those ships here. And I was aware that, um, you know, there were a lot of impacts and I've, I've seen reporting on it. You know, the carbon impacts, the, uh, the emissions, um, and then, you know, th- these are f- floating hotels that have up to 4,000 people on them. And so those people are, you know, brushing their teeth and using showers. And so there's going to be treated sewage, uh, gray water, um, all the trash that's generated and, you know, thousands of tourists basically doubling or tripling the size of population of small towns. Uh, when these ships arrive. Uh, but I, I wanted to dig in deeper, and so I spoke to the magazine that published it, Haikai, about how we could approach that. As you mentioned, there's been a lot of reporting on this over the years, but something that's really unique about your piece, I think, is the formatting of it. Um, so we follow this one fictional ship. Uh, you call it the Oceanic Topaz. We follow it through its stops on its journey through Alaska. Um, I wonder what led you to that approach. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I the findings I'd, I'd found in this uh, were really overwhelming. You know, putting it in a traditional article um, was going to make it difficult to really kind of cumulatively see those impacts. But if you kind of look at, at one ship and seeing the impact of just one ship um, on its seven-day journey, I think was was pretty powerful. Yeah, I just want to highlight some of the numbers that you bring up in your reporting. 2,800 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. And then, of course, you use hot tubs to visualize the wastewater, which I thought was helpful. Um, 400 tubs of sewage and 3,000 hot tubs worth of gray water. And then, of course, there's the trash. I think it was eight tons of trash. I mean, those are, are huge numbers, and that's all for one ship. Then you start to understand here in Juneau, we're seeing up to five ships a day. And then it's it's amazing to think about that there are nearly 300 of them uh, making that journey. You know, 13 ships, 300-some uh, sailings. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. Here in Juneau, uh, something that really struck me is that the majority of our marine emissions, I think upwards of 80%, um, can be linked to the diesel fuel that burns with cruise ships. But I'm wondering if you could contextualize that piece a little bit more for me. Yes, it was, it was really surprising because I think a lot of us, you know, are always, we're always thinking about our climate impacts, about, you know, whether we drive our car on a trip or if we, if we take a flight, um, and, you know, where cruises fit into that as well. And, and cruises uh, seem to be really high on that level. And that was, that was fairly surprising to see that one, um, you know, seven day cruise is putting out, you know, 2,800 metric tons of carbon dioxide, which is equivalent to driving 600 cars for a year. And another thing I want to ask about, those those diesel fuels are really heavy on emissions, but they're also heavy on another kind of pollution, which I wasn't super familiar with. Um, it's the impact of scrubber discharge. Yeah, so uh, a lot of these ships for, for years um, used uh, what's called high sulfur fuel, and it, it puts out these particulates. Um, it's really bad pollution. And so the International Maritime Organization, you know, recommended that ships um, 
uh, either switch to a low sulfur fuel or put in what's called a scrubber, which basically sprays water through the exhaust and, and basically taking that and, and putting those pollutants into the water instead of into the air. The problem is, is then it takes those pollutants and puts it out into the sea. And so that discharge is very acidic. It contributes to ocean acidification. It has, um, you know, metals and other pollutants in it. Um, and it's really very unregulated because it's relatively new. I mean, most people know about, you know, sewage and that it should be treated. Um, but this is a, is dumped in both Washington State, British Columbia and Alaska. It's clear from a lot of the sources that you interview that there's definitely concern, like Alaskans are concerned and, and are noticing these impacts. But there's a trade off for a lot of these communities, right? You, you hear uh, about the economic benefit that the cruise industry brings. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. I mean, you know, Seattle actually definitely benefits. There's no question. Um, and, and certainly it's, you know, the economic benefits to places like Juneau and Ketchikan are, are high. And uh, maybe the economic benefits are, you know, worth it. But when you kind of total up, you know, all of those impacts and the impacts to quality of life, um, you know, there's some question. And it was surprising to me that the, you know, there was a, a poll of Juneau residents that said a majority of them were like, yes, we should limit the number of cruise ships. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure it will be really interesting for our listeners because our first cruise ships arrive just over two weeks from now. And you've given me lots to think about as I watch them start to come in. So thanks for chatting with me, Andrew. Really appreciate it. The start of that was K2's Anna Canny talking to Seattle-based reporter Andrew Engelson about his recent article about the impacts of taking an Alaska cruise. Over a hundred Homer residents gathered for a recent community forum to discuss short and long-term solutions for housing in the area. Ideas ranged from regulating short-term rentals to a Homer app for available housing to low-interest construction loans and tax breaks for building multifamily affordable homes. Corinne Smith reports from Homer. Penelope Haas has lived in Homer for nearly a decade. Six years ago, she purchased land and is working on building a home. I, in the time that I've lived in Homer, have watched it transform. And my friends and acquaintances, people who everyone I talk to, um, make me feel like it is increasingly difficult for people with regular jobs, teachers, people in the grocery store, contractors, to afford to live here. Haas is one of many concerned residents that turned out to a recent community forum to discuss housing challenges and brainstorm solutions. She says she'd like to see regulation of short-term rentals listed through platforms like Airbnb and VRBO. You can see that in the data that half the homes built in Homer in the past couple years are not occupied. She points to a permit system used in Lake Tahoe, California, a popular year-round tourism destination to regulate the numbers of vacation rentals. It's a limited entry permit system, which is how we manage our salmon fisheries. Um, the limited entry permit system as it applies to B&Bs and Homer would help us, first of all, get a handle on who has Airbnbs and how many there are. She says she doesn't want to curtail tourism, which is an important economic driver for the community, but wants to see residents' needs put first.
Shannon McBride Morin echoed the need for addressing the growing number of short-term rentals. She was born and raised in Homer and is owner of the Kachemak Bay Wilderness Lodge in China Poop Bay. She says they employ roughly 15 summer workers, which they provide housing for. But she wants to see affordability also addressed. I care deeply about people who come to live and work in Homer, whether it's just to work seasonally for the summer or who want to start a family or just who want to live here around feeling like it's possible and it's affordable and they can do it and they're not using every penny they make to pay their rent and to buy their groceries. Anna Reed is a Homer-based realtor. She grew up in the community and has also struggled to find year-round housing as she is saving up to buy a home. She points to a gap between the number of vacant homes and the number of renters. Kind of having a, an efficient system that documents um, and allows people to find housing versus word of mouth, which is very effective if you lived here for a long time and you know a lot of people. But I was actually interested in the idea of developing some kind of app that's um, catered to short-term season rental renters and then long-term year-round rentals that people can find resources a little bit more easily. Reed says available housing is quite low and recent increases in interest rates make it challenging for buyers seeking loans. She sees a good short-term solution in building multifamily homes or additional units on existing properties. Taking a home that's already existing, that's laying vacant, and having some sort of help, whether from the city or some sort of loan, where someone could easily add um, an additional dwelling unit, whether just by putting up a wall or a doorway through a staircase or a kitchenette or her bathroom, something kind of small that would allow someone's otherwise large vacant home to be kind of sectioned off in a way that they're, they feel comfortable and secure and they could rent that small portion of their home out. Residents also talked about land availability and exploring incentives like public land sales, from the city or borough at affordable rates for building more housing. Robert Ruffner is the planning director of the Kenai Peninsula Borough. I think some of the other solutions that came up is, you know, kind of looking at our vacancy rates, you know, land that doesn't have any structures on it. You know, why is that happening? Um, it seems like the return on investment for developers right now is not to develop what we would consider tiny homes or more affordable solutions for housing. But, but the market is really primed for seasonal rentals or simply just speculation because we see the land values are going up so high in Alaska because it is such a nice place to live. Organizers of the community forum will be compiling the ideas for housing solutions generated by residents and will be making it available to the public later this month. In Homer, I'm Corinne Smith. The Yukon River system is being closed to sport fishing for king and chum salmon. The action covers the entire drainage, including the Tanana River. Alaska Department of Fish and Game Tanana Area sport fish biologist Andrew Grishka, Griska says managers decided to make the closure call in April instead of waiting until June. With the past couple years, poor runs, and again, another poor forecast, we decided to issue the emergency order now just to give a little bit more time for sport fishermen that were looking forward to uh, fishing this summer. They would have some advance notice and they could adjust their plans accordingly. Griska says managers will reevaluate the closure based on actual salmon passage this summer as counted by sonar at pilot station near the river's mouth.
the Yukon River drainage sport fish enclosure for kings, summer and fall salmon went into effect Wednesday. According to a state release, subsistence fish enclosures or restrictions are also anticipated again this year. Petersburg High School, a Petersburg High School student competed in a statewide poetry competition in Juneau last month. Sophomore Eleanor Candle was one of 10 finalists in Alaska's Poetry Out Loud recital. Poetry Out Loud is a contest that encourages students from across the United States to learn about poetry by memorizing and reciting poems of their choice. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's Eleanor Candle performing Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley at the state recital on March 20th. Candle says she chose the poem for its power and simplicity. It's talking about this ancient statue in the desert. And despite the statue having an inscription saying that it's mighty, it's broken and it's lying in this lonely desert and no one cares about it. As for Candle's favorite style of poetry, she says she's drawn to all things dark, gloomy, and dramatic. Like, I really love Edgar Allan Poe and I would have liked to recite three of his poems. But I knew that probably wasn't a good idea because it would have not been balanced. I have to kind of like force happy stuff in. Candle had to win two other poetry competitions to get to the state recital, one in her English classroom and then a regional competition for Southeast Alaska. The top four competitors from Petersburg High School got to send recordings of their poems to a panel of regional judges. Of those four students, Candle was chosen to go to the state competition. Candle says the skills she's learned to recite poetry in a compelling way carry over into her everyday life. What I've learned from reciting poetry is how to be more expressive and convincing and how to make people empathize with me when I speak. And whether that's speaking in front of a bunch of people or just speaking to one person, Candle says it's not an easy process, and she invested a lot of time and hard work into getting ready for the state competition. I'd say the memorization is hard, but you'll eventually get it down. The hardest part for me is definitely the stage, right? Because you only get one chance to say your poem, so you'd better not be paralyzed by stage fright. (laughs) In spite of the hard parts, she says the Poetry Out Loud program is worth supporting. She encourages other students to join. I know a lot of people hear the poetry competition and they think, oh, that's a really nerdy thing to be part of, but it's really worth it. And it's a great experience and it teaches you a lot of speaking skills and everyone could use more poetry and art in their lives. Brigida Palepa Taga from West Anchorage High School emerged as the Alaska State finalist. Violet Bowie, also from West Anchorage High School, was the runner-up. In May, Taga will compete in the 2023 Poetry Out Loud National Finals in Washington, D.C. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert.